Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Wednesday morning to you. Mike McNamara in for a Wednesday edition of All Marine Radio. And um, the show today, interesting one. One of those things that happens when you do this kind of stuff, or at least it happens to me. And uh, very cool. Yeah. No kidding. And I talked to you about a quote that I I saw and was captivated by, right? Um, and that is, the quote is, Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. Now, because I'm a product of contemporary American thought, you know, it's it comes from a piece of post-apocalyptic fiction, right? So I would take that and I would make it less gender-oriented and write the following. Strong times create... I'm sorry, hold on, let me start again. Hard times create the strong. The strong create good times. Good times create the weak. And the weak create hard times. That that way I could bypass any accusation of being chauvinistic. Um, but anyway, the quote strikes when I heard it uttered by a Marine sergeant during a post-traumatic winning kind of private session. Um, stopped the conversation and so um, so anyway I tracked down the author he lives in San Diego area and uh, lo and behold he's a former Marine so you're going to get um, you're going to get to hear that conversation his career, uh, high school educated, now the author of, I think, 37 books. 
right? Jeff Hoff and H-O-P-F, G-E-O-F-F, H-O-P-F, if you're, uh, if you're into post-apocalyptic fiction. And um, so anyway, former Marine, so you might find it interesting, right? He sold a lot of books, so a lot of people do. So you can check him out. Uh, again, G-E-O-F-F-H-O-P-F. So Jeff Hoff. So anyway, I uh, I leave a message and he returns the phone call. And um, so you're going to hear him. And his story is an interesting one, right? Um, again, high school educated, smart as a whip, um, joins the Marine Corps, gets out, does a few things, and then decides he's going to be a writer. And he's a very successful one. So his story and the origin of the quote and whatnot, which is interesting. Um, so you'll hear him today. Um, the other thing I would, um, I do, I have this um, graduate group in post-traumatic winning. So people that have gone through the seminar and uh, we get together every Monday night. And we were um, talking about faith and uh, does faith play a role in your uh, in the way you deal with the traumatic experiences in your life in the way you cope and you know and so as you might imagine from a you know group of maybe a dozen people you know you you get a, a diverse you get a series of diverse thoughts and I talked about um, you know I grew up Catholic and I would offer, I would offer to you um, one of the best books I've ever read about the, one of the books that's been incredibly influential in my life, and that is when bad things happen to good people. And I, as a young man, um, the way I was educated uh, by my by the Catholic education that I got, you know, I, God had a plan and, and everything you saw was part of God's divine plan. And, um, and so when my family began to fall apart, um, this is God's plan, you know, and I tried to understand it and I didn't get really very good answers from what I read and what I studied and conversations I had. And I think it's a fairly typical road that people go down. And then, um, so I developed this theory that I used to call the shake and enroll them theory that, that God really didn't, doesn't do this stuff, right? That was my theory. That this all-loving God doesn't do a lot of the stuff that we hang on him or her. And I used to call it my shake and enroll them theory. And the theory was this, Okay. That God's a cool guy or girl, and he's up by a pool someplace in heaven, right? And he's kind of bored because he's created the universe and whatnot. But being God, I mean, he wants stuff to do. And so, um, well, he's created what he's created at, the t at this point in time. So he's bored or she's bored. Um, not sure why I'm defining God and human gender terms but um anyway that entity known as god is bored 
So being a cool guy, as I conceive God, he's at he's beautiful day in the mid seventies, sun's out near a pool or at the beach. Being bored, he says, "You know, I need a new project," and he scoops up some some dirt and he fashions it into our universe, right? And he has one of the good-looking girls in bikinis there because, I mean, if you were God, you could do that kind of stuff. There'd be a bunch of them there. And, you know, kind of like somebody blowing on dice in Vegas. Hey, blow on this for good luck. And they do. And then he blows life into it. And then he fires it out. And that's our universe. And um, we are down here in the human condition, subject to that human condition. It's why people get cancer. We're also down here um, making our own decisions and why things like the Holocaust happen. Those things are human engineered, not God-given. So anyway, that's my theory, and I call it the shake and roll theory. I, I tell my roommate at the time, Kevin McGarry, also raised going to Catholic school, and, and we actually begin to have, and as I reflect on it, a pretty um, deep conversation about randomness, right, and randomness's role in our lives. And how that randomness is it is it is it God inspired or is it inspired by something else? How do you make sense of that? Is and so we, we he lives in San Jose, his parents do. My parents my family lives in Sacramento. So Christmas nineteen eighty maybe, uh, maybe seventy nine, eighty, um, I'm going home, and he says, hey, man, can I hit you ride to San Jose? And I said, yeah. So we ride to San Jose. I drop him off. I go to Sacramento. On the way back, I, I, I pick him up, and we drive, we're driving back down. And he looks at me, and he says, hey. He says, I found your shake and roll theory in a book. And I looked at him, and I said, get the fuck out. And he goes, no, I swear to God. I said, what's the name of the book? He said, it's called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I said, he said, but that's all I'm going to tell you. And I said, why? He said, I'm not going to talk about it. Um, and so maybe I should read you the last part of it. I'll just read you the last page of, of, of the third chapter. And the third chapter is entitled... Sometimes there is no reason. Okay, so, and this is, it's written by Rabbi Harold Kushner. And so, this is, this is the last page of it. A change of wind direction or the shifting of a tectonic plate can cause a hurricane or earthquake to move toward a population area instead of out into an uninhabited stretch of land. Why? A random shift in weather patterns causes too much or too little rain over a farming area and a year's harvest is destroyed. A drunken driver steers his car over the center line of a highway and collides 
with the green Chevrolet instead of the red Ford 50 feet further away. An engine bolt breaks on flight 205 instead of on flight 209, inflicting tragedy on one random group of families rather than another. There is no message in all of that. There is no reason for those particular people to be afflicted rather than others. These events are not, these events do not reflect God's choice. They happen at random. And randomness is another name for chaos. In those corners of the universe where God's creative light has yet to penetrate. And chaos as evil, not wrong, not malevolent, but none but evil nonetheless, because by causing tragedies at random, it prevents people from believing in God's goodness. I once asked a friend of mine, an accomplished physicist, whether from a scientific perspective the world was becoming a more orderly place, whether randomness was increasing or decreasing with time. He replied by citing the second law of thermodynamics, the law of entropy, Every system left to itself will change in such a way as to approach equilibrium. He explained that this meant the world was changing in the direction of more randomness. Think of a group of marbles in a jar, carefully arranged by size and color. The more you shake the jar, the more the neat arrangement will give way to random distribution until it will only be a coincidence to find one marble next to another of the same color. This, he said, is what is happening in the world. One hur hurricane might veer off to sea, sparing a coastal city, but it would be a mistake to see any evidence of pattern or purpose to that. Over the course of time, some hurricanes will blow harmlessly out to sea, while others will head into populated areas and cause devastation. The longer you keep track of such things, the less of a pattern you will find. I told him that I had been hoping for a different answer. I had hoped for a scientific equivalent of the first chapter of the Bible, telling me that with every passing day, the realm of chaos was diminishing and more of the universe was yielding to the rule of order. He told me that if it made me feel any better, Albert Einstein had the same problem. Einstein was uncomfortable with quantum physics and tried for years to disprove it because it based itself on the hypothesis of things happening at random. Einstein preferred to believe that God does not play dice with the cosmos. It may be that Einstein and the book of Genesis are right. A system left to itself may evolve in the direction of randomness. On the other hand, our world may not be a system left to itself. There may be, in fact, a creative impulse acting on it, the Spirit of God hovering over the dark waters, operating over the course of millennia to bring order out of chaos. It may yet come to pass that as Friday afternoon of the world's evolution ticks towards the great Sabbath, which is the end of the days, the impact of random evil will be diminished. Or it may be that God finished his work of creating of creating eons ago and left the rest to us. Residual chaos, chance, and mischance, things happening for no reason, will continue to be with us, the kind of evil that Milton Steinberg 
has called, quote, the still unremoved scaffolding of the edifice of God's creativity. In that case, we will simply have to learn to live with it, sustained and comforted by the knowledge of the earthquake and the accident. Like the murder and the robbery are not the will of God, but represent that aspect of reality which stands independent of his will and which angers and saddens God even as it angers and saddens us. So that's about the last page of um, the third chapter of when bad things happen to good people. And uh, again, written by Rabbi Harold Kushner. And so um, I would tell you that by all means, uh, if you get a chance, read the book. Um, it is, um, it's an awesome work. And, um, you know, this whole idea of randomness and how it impacts our lives um, is, and, and the whole question of why me uh, is, is a very deep and profound question and impacts a lot of our lives. And the answer impacts our lives acutely. So, um, yeah, I thought I would share that with you. Um, so I, 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 we discussed that, and I sent that out on Monday night after our discussion. And then, um, and then I started rereading the book last night. So, um, yeah, on that note, the United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official. Good morning to you. Dedicated to Rabbi Harold Kushner, who wrote When Bad Things Happen to Good People, and a sergeant whose first name is Landon, who gave me a quote that led me to the interview you're about to hear. So, there you go. Thank you.
you're betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> But I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore. So, young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day. And Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds to win. You gotta win. Alright, here's a look at the weather around Marine Land. Sunny and 78 in Quantico. At Marine Corps Station Cherry Point. Home of the second Marine Air Wing. Sunny in 84. 29 Palms. Mostly sunny in 85. Camp Pendleton. Sunny and 69. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy, 75. In Okinawa, it is dark cloudy, 82. Manila, dark raining in 80. Darwin, dark cloudy, 72. And in Kiev, it's cooled off a little bit. Mostly sunny and 66. At the home of All Marine Radio, it is mostly cloudy, and 69 on our way to 78 degrees today with a 31% chance of rain. What the hell is that? 78 tomorrow, 76 on Friday, 76 on Saturday, 79 on Sunday. Uh, we can live with that. Okay, without further ado, you're going to hear Jeff Hop right now. The other day, I was doing a little bit of trauma coaching and uh, a Marine sergeant who had seen uh, post-traumatic winning um, had actually called me and said, hey, I've got a friend. Uh, we were at the airport in Afghanistan in Kabul and he's struggling. And uh, can you help us? And I said, sure, let's do this. <clears throat> we'll do like a five-week program, watch an hour of the video, then we'll talk about it. So Saturday morning, I get up at, 5.30, we're doing this thing at 6. They're on the East Coast. And at the end of it, about an hour and a half later, I said, okay, final thoughts on today. And so the sergeant thinks for a second, and he says, well, <clears throat> you know, Mac, uh, there's this quote. And um, the quote says this, right? Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. And, he, and so he says the quote, and then he just, he just continues on making his point. And I said, whoa, 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 back the fucking truck up, man. Say that again? Where the fuck did you get that? And I can't remember if he told me where he got it. He, I don't think he did. And he repeats the quote, and I write it down. So I go looking for the author of this. And I find this dude named, right, G. Michael Hoff. And so I send him, and I don't read his bio or anything. I send him an email and say, hey, I, 
I'd like to talk to you. And um, I get a text back and then I read a little bit about him and I find out he's a fucking Marine, man. And better yet, he's an infantry Marine, right? So um, I want to introduce G. Michael Hoff, known as Jeff. Uh, So Jeff, first of all, welcome to All Marine Radio. Thanks for doing this. Hey, Mac. I uh, appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Well, before we could do anything, we, as Marines, right, you got to pass the sniff test, right? So let's talk about you. Born and raised where? Uh, born and raised in Maryland and then reborn on Paris Island, South Carolina. Stop it. Uh, as a Marine. Look, if we needed fake motivation, I know who to call for that shit, okay? <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that, though. I mean, I, I had 18 years of my life, you know, lived a good life on a farm in, in Southern Maryland, great parents. My dad was a Marine and uh, had good grades, could have gone to school. And I decided I just had too much going on inside of me and I needed to kind of have live a life of adventure. And oh, there can't be a better place to go to live that, to serve your country, than the United States Marine Corps. So that's what took me there. And and it's it is true to say that I was reborn there. I was you know, you know, broken down and then remade into a United States Marine. And there is there is nothing better than that. Do you need me to play some soundtrack behind that while you say that? Do I do it again? <laughs> the, um, so you're so that how, so the Marine Corps gets on your on your radar because you grew up. Um, when was your dad in the Marine Corps? What did your dad do? He was uh, infantry as well. He was a BA. He was a BA Armin. Whoa! Um, and with yeah, with uh, with the Ninth Marine Regiment in Okinawa in the fifties, right after Korea. Yeah. But hey, the BAR—that's no bullshit, man. That's legit, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so, so he, you, uh, you, grow, uh, you he grow... definitely instilled a lot of that pride in us. Right? You grew up looking at that, and. You're you're like my sons, right? Both of them became infantry officers, right? It's not just being a Marine isn't enough, right? You got to get your man card. And in order to do that, there's only one place you get that, and that is O3XXMOS. And so, but you came in the you came in the Marine Corps uh, open contract? I came in, I did the what was it called, the uh, delayed entry program, and then I did the um it had six-year contracts at the time. Right. Somehow, I thought that was a smart move to sign that six-year. It guaranteed my <laughs> it guaranteed my MOS. So wow. I actually signed up deliberately for the infantry. I remember my recruiter, Sergeant Tobin, and I was like, "I'm gonna add to my ass dives are really good." And he goes, "You can do pretty much do whatever you want." And I go, "I want to do infantry." <laughs> he was laughing at me. <laughs> He goes, well, you're a smart kid. We're going to make you one of the smart grunts. We'll make you a tow gunner, an 0352. I'm like, okay, that sounds good, whatever that is. <laughs> so, I mean, I didn't know what that was at the time. I was like, that sounds what He goes, listen, you'll be, you'll be either in Jeeps or Hummers. You'll be fine. You, you, trust me, you'll appreciate this later on. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this. So where's this idea of uh, living this life of adventure get planted in your head? Well, it's a mixed bag of, uh, you know, listening to my dad's stories and then uh, being a big reader um, and just reading just the classics, uh, reading uh, mainly a lot of Ernest Hemingway. You know, he's like, he's definitely my favorite author. And just his adventures, like he wasn't a man who just, 
wrote about other people's adventures. He actually went out and lived them. He actually was kind of a renaissance man in a lot of ways and did a lot of interesting um, things. If anyone knows about Ernest Hemingway, you know, what he did during World War One and the Spanish Civil War and his, I mean, he was just, you know, a guy's guy. He was a definitely, you know, he was a man. And, uh, and a man who kind of you know, lived, truly lived life, right? And, and and had those experiences and had those those, those victories and also those defeats. Um, he was kind of what Teddy Roosevelt would say, kind of that man in the arena. He, he put himself forward, uh, willing to fail, and sometimes did. But you know, when you do, you 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 come out a better person, even through failure. So I was just living that adventure, and I was like, you know, I could go to college when I get when I get out of the Marine Corps. Um, but I'm a young man. Now's the time to get out there and. Uh, and live that and live that life. And so that's what I did. When I was 18, I joined the Marine Corps and then uh, Paris Island, the Camp Lejeune. Uh, they, had, was, they had just started uh, Marine combat training at that time. It was like a beta program or something. This was 1989. So I did the Marine combat training and then went right to School of Infantry. And then my first duty assignment was uh, anti-tank company, 1st Tank Battalion, Camp Pendleton. Living the good life on the ocean side of the base the uh let me ask you uh, a Heming- a couple of hemingway questions right if um if for the people who've never read hemingway if uh give them a recommendation um if you're gonna tell somebody to read one thing about hemingway what or one thing he wrote what would you tell them to read for whom the bell tolls got it that's a that's just a that's just a classic that's a great one um yeah, uh, you'll get a lot out of that, and that is uh, kind of details. You know, it's a fictional account, but it details a lot of his own experiences during the Spanish Civil War. But uh, definitely a good read. Um, All right, give me your thoughts yeah. on the short, happy life of Francis Mecomer. Macomber, right? on, on who? Uh, on the short story, the Hemingway short story, the short, happy life of Francis Mecomer. Are you familiar? I'm not familiar with that now. All right, you have you to stop read. me. You have to no. You have to read it. All right. So, and then we'll do this again, and you can give me your thoughts on it. The um, no, it's this guy who gets he's kind of browbeaten by his wife, and he goes on a safari. His wife sleeps with the guide, right, um, in their camp, and then he finally throws off the yoke of her tyranny, stands up to the guide. And then uh, they go hunting that day, and I think it's a rhinoceros that charges him, and he stands there, unafraid now, or maybe afraid, but controlling his fear. And he stands there, and he breathes, and he squeezes, and the thing keeps coming, and he keeps shooting, and ultimately the thing falls in front of him. And all the guys working on this hunt go crazy. And then right as the rhinoceros falls, he looks around, they're going crazy, and his wife shoots him in the back of the head. Um, so it's this crazy roller coaster of a story, of a short story. Um, and uh, so I need to get your thoughts on it. Um, so, yeah, I would, I, def- I, need, I, need, I definitely need to check that out. And that must go back to like, yeah, again, he's he clearly, because I know his experiences as a big game hunter. Right. And so he clearly is, you know, throwing that in those in that story as well. I mean, th- there could even be some truth to that story, by the way, too. And that's what I've loved about 
you know, the things he would do. Like when he was writing about, you know, the old man of the sea, you know, here's a guy who actually learned to become a sailor, who actually is the last thing that I have you saying. So finish okay. finish that thought and we'll continue. Three, two, one, go. Yeah, and, and, and this is what I love about Hemingway's. He's, you know, he's he he went out and did things. He actually, and then he wrote about his experiences. So when you read his books, you get this authenticity about him. And um, this is what attracted me uh, to the Marine Corps as well, because I've just had this this urge, this desire to go out and live life as well, and like you know, live it on kind of the edge in some regards. Um, and have those experiences. And I thought the Marine Corps was a great outlet for that. And, um, and, and this goes back to kind of thoughts of general and why uh, we all know the guy that has a midlife crisis. And I think the midlife crisis can come to a man that hasn't taken, didn't take those early years to go out and experience life. They, they did other things, not that not just those things were bad, but I think we were just built, young men were built to go out and do things, live adventure, conquer. Um, it's just in us. And I think that those guys that have this midlife crisis have never had those experiences. And this is why I, I do look back on my years in the Marine Corps and I, with, with gratitude, um, even though some of it sucked, and that's why they call it the suck sometimes, right? Right. But, it just was it was amazing. It truly was an amazing experience, and I highly encourage young men to seek that. Talk to me about. Um, I mean, you're uh, you're you served in with uh, well, it was tow company in First Tank Battalion, right? And so you go to uh, the Gulf War. Tell me, tell me about that. Well, it's you know we get there. We, we, we start off on a UDP to Okinawa and literally like, the day we land in Okinawa is like the day that was an early August, the day that Saddam invades Kuwait. So we instantly get kind of like ramped up for something. And then a month later we get on ships and we sail over to Saudi and then we're just sitting in the desert in defensive positions until, you know, the ground war starts. But, um, it was uh, it was an interesting experience, not kind of the intense combat that, you know, uh, happens 10 years later and so forth with the with the missions in Afghanistan and Iraq. But nevertheless, we whenever we had a mission to accomplish and we accomplished it with minimal casualties. Um, but it was it was quite an experience, uh, to say the least, without a doubt. Um, in reading about you, uh, you say that. Uh, you were scared. You were terrified. Um, I was. I, I remember so, getting our uniforms. Yeah, I remember getting our uniforms. We're in Okinawa. We're, we we marched down to the supply, and they're handing us the old chocolate chip desert camis. Right. And we're getting the mop suits, and we're already hearing about. We're, you know, because you know the Iran Iraq War was still very much in people's recent memories because it, you know, it was like the, the early '80s. Right? Was the Iran Iraq War, and we knew how some of that fighting had been, and the use of chemical weapons by mustard gas or whatever by the Iraqis, you know, was something that was could be a potentially a real threat. And you're about the weapons of mass destruction, all this stuff is at the time. And so, yeah, I mean, you know, you we sign up knowing that that's a real possibility. And then when it's happening, when it's happening, you know, you get you get some you get some butterflies, right? I was like, oh shit, this is like this is real now. But. Um, we all just came together as a unit and we just, you know, did our thing. 
like every other Marine has done in the past. And by the way, that's something, too, I think that makes the Marine Corps an effective fighting force is the, the, the heritage and the legacy and the history we're taught about the Marines that came before us. And so then it's incumbent upon us to to continue to fill in the, the, the tapestry of history and to uh, and to carry that that name forward. And so I think that's that's something that really helps Marines. And I hope they continue that, um, you know, drilling into future Marines, where they came from and that they uh, they, too, are part of the lineage of other great Marines, whether it's from, you know, the battles in, 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 in Iraq or Afghanistan or the Gulf War, you take you name it, oh, back to Korea, Vietnam, World War II, the island campaign, World War One, all those. They need to really instill that in Marines. I think that really helps, by the way. It helps the culture. You know, it's interesting. Um, when I flew to Iraq the first time, I remember um, you just said goodbye to your family, right? And you were single, right? If you have, if you're married with kids, uh, it's a it's a pretty terrifying experience because you you know you have this little voice in your head that tells you you may never see them again. And I remember being on the plane thinking, you know, I don't know what's going to happen here. Um, uh, I don't know that I will control whether I get on the return flight or not. But the one thing I do control is. I am not going to let down that long shadow of that Iwo Jima flag raising. And I'm not going to let down these guys who depend on me. Uh, and I don't know what's going to happen beyond that, but that's, and so almost the exact same series of thoughts, right? That long shadow of the flag raising of Iwo Jima does cast a long and, you know, I, I don't want to say intimidating, but inspiring shadow. Right, that I am now a part of this. I'm going to write. A, I'm going to help write some history in some way, shape, or form, and I'm going to be up to it. And I'm not sure if I'll survive it, but I'm not shying away. And I will tell you, my own opinion is that's what makes the Marine Corps different. The young person like you that looks at it and says, "I'm not afraid of a challenge. I want to be a part of that." You know, and and again, the Marine Corps does a great job. You know, with recruit training and, and all the things they do to to prepare you. But it's that kid who makes that's a different human being. And when you go fight with those, that group, right? It's a bunch of people like that who look and say, let's go fucking do this shit. Right. And somebody who wants to get it on with, with us, um, they don't flinch, right? And they're not and, and they'll fight. They're not afraid to fight. So it's an interesting dynamic with this group that 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 gravitates to the craziness that is you know, the, not only the the fact, but the propaganda that surrounds Marine Corps recruit training and the whole thing about being a Marine. So it's it's very interesting. Same series of thoughts. Same series. So. Yeah, I've I've had other friends and other services that will say, you know, there's really only two branches of the military: there's the Army and the Navy, and then the Air Force is a corporation, and the Marine Corps is a cult. <laughs> I just laugh at that because there's some kind of you know truth to that the way the marine corps kind of instills all that and maybe it is a cult-like thing but you know we're warriors there's no doubt about it and everybody knows it around the world and i'll i'll take that as a moniker fine yeah no i'm with you because <laughs> what it does it there, there's a lot of respect that comes with that that's what's important no and and uh i'll tell you what i mean i had a chance in three different deployments nobody fights like we do and nobody does special forces guys yes no, anybody else? No, Marine Corps, Marines. You want to get it on with us? 
we will be there all day till and you can you can punch us in the nose you can knock some of our teeth out at the end of the day you will be dead and the people that helped you will be killed or captured and that's just the way it is and that's and that's the corporate mindset which is the coolest part about it and and so i i'm with you you stay in you complete your your enlistment you get out of the rank of sergeant um, you had had enough of the Marine Corps. What did you, did you, did you think about reenlisting at all? Or had you done what you wanted to do and you were on to other things? Talk to me about that. It's, it's, that's kind of a mixed bag. You know, um, I had done a lot of what I wanted to do and travel around the world. I did three deployments, uh, you know, after the, after the almost 10 months in the desert, uh, Gulf War, we come back, I instantly rotate back up now heading over to weapons company because tow company disbands they send us over to weapons company first battalion first marines out at camp porno <laughs> and then uh Ooh. we then uh, rotate up and we head out on deployment at westpac which was amazing by the way come at like you know you're kind of going back to the roots of you know the you know the early marines and ships and hitting ports and it was it, we had an incredible westpac I mean, as far as the destinations we went, it was it was what, what was it the, was amazing. What was the best city you guys pulled Liberty in? Fremantle, Australia. Really? Yeah. Why? All the stories are all the stories are exactly as they <laughs> <say>. <laughs> 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 There's the mythology behind you know when you pull into Australia, the women. It's exactly like that. <laughs> like um, there were, there were more people. And when we pull in and then when we came back, it was just hundreds and hundreds of people, mainly women that were there to greet us as we were pulling in and we got our alphas on. It was an amazing, I think we spent a week there. So Fremantle is like a port city that's just north of Perth on, on Western Australia, like the South coast, south, Southwest of Australia. Um, that was, yeah. That was amazing. <laughs> so it's so so it's it's that which we hear. I've never been it to is. Australia when on my way back from the Indian Ocean. Actually, I was I was on sea duty aboard an aircraft carrier, and um, we had the chance to go to Perth or to Thailand. And the chiefs mess voted that we should go to Thailand, so that's where we went. So we went to Pattaya Beach in Thailand, which was which was an interesting place. Um, that's another but, one. Yeah, we hit that too. By the way, uh, we like hit all, all the best stops. We we went to um, Subic Bay, so we got the Alangapur thing in the PI. Wow. We hit Malaysia, Sing uh, Singapore. We went into the Persian Gulf, did three port stops there. Hit, hit East Africa. We went to Kenya, wow. Australia. And then did you, um, did you guys have any time to train at all between your libo ports? What the hell, man? <laughs> like we were on vacation. It was amazing. <laughs> we had some old salty sailors on there. Like this is really the best West Pack ever. <laughs> That's awesome. It was. Uh, and we also hit Hong Kong, too. Yeah. Oh, we also hit Hong Kong. Well. Hong Kong won. I mean, I don't know what Hong Kong's like now that the Chinese actually own it. But when the Brits owned it. That place was, um, I have three favorite cities in the world. Hong Kong, uh, used to be San Francisco. I haven't been there in a while. I haven't heard good things about it. But it used to be awesome city. And New York City. Um, Hong Kong was 
cosmopolitan Asian flair, mm-hmm. but it also had the Brits had settled it. So it had that going to the uh, geography of Hong Kong from bay to mountains in like a nanosecond is, uh, is, is just absolutely beautiful. And, and then the, the exotic Chinese culture was, is cool as shit. So yeah, Hong Kong, righteous. Yeah. Yeah. We, we did. I did that twice because our UDT, the Okinawa, my third deployment, we had, we hook up with, it was a 31st Mew. Yep. That's out of there. And we did the 31st Mew. We went down, we did, uh, did some training. I guess there's some little islands off of Hong Kong. Yep. 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 And then, then we had Libo in, in there. Was it Fenwick? Pier is that the pier we pull up to? I think where it is. the boats come up. Yep. I think it's kind of a pier. I think, yeah. Wow. Got a good memory. <laughs> <laughs> you you got to get back. You, you got to know where to get back to late at night. The um, <laughs> what? Okay, so now you get out of the Marine Corps, and what do you do? Uh, so I ended up becoming a commercial diver because I wanted to continue this kind of adventure life, and I heard these guys make good money. That turns out to be bullshit, but um. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, well, there's truth in it, but it's what they don't give you the entire experience of being a commercial diver. So, you know, I'm just a stupid jarhead. Sign, I mean, me and a couple of buddies from from uh, from one one, we're like, let's do this. We do it together. So we go to Houston, Texas, do commercial diving school for six months, get our diplomas. And then we get hooked up with uh, an outfit out of Houston called American Oilfield Divers. And now we're. We think we're going to be diving. Nope. <laughs> we're just tenders and working as tenders on, on boats or off platforms. And it just takes a while to kind of build up. Like a tender is essentially like a squire to a knight. So you go to the companies and you get hooked up. And then you're essentially so you're, t- you're tending to all their needs. And then you're learning slowly because um, you only kind of really learn the basics in commercial diving school. Then you learn all the, really learn the industry of underwater construction work. Um, which is, which is, by the way, that time was valuable. And then it takes about 18 months to break out as a diver and then you're a junior diver. But I did that for about almost two years. And then I left because I almost got killed. It sucked into a pipe. I was like, I'm not making enough money here. So anyway, get got sucked into a pipe, get sucked into a, got sucked into a pipe. I almost almost got sucked in. Hi, what kind of, what kind of pipe? What were you doing? So we were working this, I got transferred over to the inland division. So the American inland divers were, we were essentially working inland work. You're working in nuclear power plants, petrochemical plants in rivers, lakes, shit like that. And there was an old abandoned natural gas pipeline that extends, that, that spanned the, that used to span the Trinity river east of Houston. And when they first removed the pipe, they just put temporary plugs in there. Then, I guess to appropriate by EPA standards to a, a true pipeline abandonment has to have certain standards. That, so we go back in there to, to get it up the spec and they have these p- big gigantic plug plugs. It's like a 36 inch pipe. Right. And uh, I'm down there first half to being the junior diver. Now I'm clearing sandbags, excavating around. So the master diver can actually do the work, go down with slide, the, slide this like cover over it and then weld it on. Right. Well, the pipe is supposed to, I suppose to remove the plug. The pipe is supposed to be um, filled with water. But what they had done, they, it had, they didn't fill it with water. It was still void. So there's nothing, just air. Oh, shit. Or an inert, I think they pumped nitrogen in there. It's like an inert gas. So you imagine you're on 35, 40 feet down. 
And imagine that you're opening up, you're removing a plug and there's nothing on the side of it but a void for about a mile. Do you imagine the sucking that? Because what, what, what does water want to do? Yeah. What does water want to do when it's suddenly avoided? It just wants to rush in there. Right. Yeah, but I was. this is where well, how, training is important. Yeah. And how they, did you they, not? they always tell me not to lay in front of it by, by sheer luck. I mean, my shoulder, like, because you had all this gear on, right. I had a wetsuit on, right. and I had a hard hat. I remember removing the plug, but here, I'm a dumbass. I'm laying in front of it. I should have been laying on top of the pipe. That's mistake number one. And I remove it and hear this sucking sound. And all of a sudden, as the plug just takes off, the plug pulls in, I'm holding onto this big valve, I'm holding onto it, I'm screaming. I have comms in the surface. We have like umbilicals connected with that comms, right. other hose lines and things like that. So I'm yelling, like, pull me up, pull me up. And then they managed to get me up out of there. They're like two guys are pulling on me, pull me out of the pipe. I kind of go up until like my shoulder catches the edge of the pipe. My other like right side of my body is like pulled in, but they managed to get me out. And then the, the plug just goes flying in about a mile and then blows the top off of this like manhole cover and this whole, it was a mess. It was. Wow. <laughs> I didn't do anything. I mean, the only thing I did wrong was a dumbass laying in front of the pipe. Is the engineers that worked for the petrochemical company that were supposed to fill the pipe with water. You know, so, so when you hear. It was, when, it was almost a statistic. When you hear the phrase, I'd rather be lucky than good, it, it means something to you. Right there, it does. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I no was shit. definitely lucky. Yeah, no shit. That. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I was. Had that sucked me, and I would have dumped it. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So now, so obviously, you have a spiritual but, event there, yeah. and that that forces you to reconsider your career as a commercial diver, and what happens? Yeah, and then so my dad works for the NRA, the National Rifle Association, at the time, and he's got a, he's working as a lobbyist. See, he's got connections with an EP outfit called Vance International. And he goes, hey, I heard these guys are hiring. I was hanging out with them. It's pretty cool to be a bodyguard. Maybe you should check it out. Here, here's the, here's the, send your resume to this guy. So I'm like, literally within a week of almost getting sucked into this pipe, I fill up, get this resume, shoot it off. Time goes by. Next thing you know, I, I get an interview. Interview. Next thing you know, I, I get accepted. I quit, and I'm moved to Northern Virginia. And that begins the journey of being an executive protection agent for about, oh, about, about ten years. So tell us about the life. Let me just tell you, let me, I, I have to read. Let me read you a couple sentences from Jeff's bio. So when an opportunity came my way to begin a new career as an executive protection agent, parentheses, bodyguard, I took it. You might be thinking, almost died as a diver, now becoming a bodyguard, question mark. Yes, because it paid better. And come on, how cool is it to say you're a bodyguard? That. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is awesome right and, and again for marines we, marines use that and go yeah that's totally cool man i'm in right <laughs> yeah exactly it's totally like that might that might that might sound stupid to some people but not to us we're like yeah that's yeah uh, absolutely so talk to yeah. us about the glamorous life of a bodyguard what is uh is kevin costner are you that guy no, no, not that guy at all. It's just mainly standing around a lot. Again, there's a, there's a hierarchy there as well. You get in, and at least for my experience, I got in. And Vance International, we're not we're, Vance really doesn't contract at the time. Didn't contract out. Didn't have a lot of celebrity details. 
or gigs and had mainly worked with um, a corporate executives, but had a one important uh, contract that was with the Saudi royal families. That was my first detail working there. But you were, you start out as what they call a resident agent or a post. You were just you're standing residence. You're just standing at, at a doorway for twelve hours. That's nice, it. Nice. Just literally standing around. That's it. So and again, you just you work your way up to where you're working principal. You know, you're actually working on somebody, and then you know you can become a detail leader later on down the road, or you're working inside of command posts where a lot of you know logistics and all that shit's happening, coordination. But yeah, it was it was actually kind of fun. Like I got, I got I got known well enough that I became an independent contractor, and the phone was ringing, just going around. I mean, I worked for a lot of interesting people. Um at the time traveled around a lot it was who's, fun it paid who's really the well most, um, who's the most interesting person you worked for that you could tell us about um so i worked for uh the the saudis were interesting by the way this you know working for you know with inside of them and seeing what what really happens with inside the royal family uh, yeah. that was interesting you get you get a whole different perspective because the way they conduct themselves in the kingdom is completely different when they touch down in the Western world, it's just say, let's just say it becomes like the seven deadly sins for them. It's like, <laughs> it's a party. It's on. Um, uh, and you're, you're really doing a lot there. You're protecting them, but you're really running a lot of interference for them. And uh, as far as like me ever encountering any kind of somebody trying to kill anybody, that, that never happened. And I don't know if it's a lot of us because we do a lot of counter surveillance or we always providing, we provide a hard target to, we were providing always a hard target. So, you know, most people don't really want to go up against a hard target. So yeah, right, right, right. again, we never had any experiences with anybody ever trying to do anything like out of the movies, out of that kind of uh, shit. But um, kind of the most interesting client was I worked in Florida for a family. Um, that was interesting. The guy was an expatriate and so he had a place in the Caymans. We had 37 agents for one family. That just tells you how significant wow. that detail was. Wow. So I worked for the family specifically, and I worked inside the command post and just coordinated all the travels for the family, the father, the brother. And they had we had command posts in Florida. We had one in London. We had one in, the, in Grand Cayman. Um, we used to have one, and we had... We just had we had one in Toronto for a period of time, so it was a pretty established and large protective detail. The guy was a billionaire, expatriate, so wow, it was pretty pretty exciting. Uh, lots of travel. Pretty cool. So you meet your wife, which is a pretty cool story. What bar were you in? The old sod up in Kensington. The old sod, all right. Yeah, it's off Adams Avenue. So some, I mean, it's still there. I know that. Or at least it was a couple of years ago. My wife and I went and checked it out. But um, for, you know, there might be some Marines and sailors that might know, that might be familiar with it. It's like a just a hole in the wall, like Irish pub. It's just, it's beautiful. It's perfect. It's dirty. Got great music, great beer. Yeah, it's a good place. So you're in there hanging out and tell the story. Because if, if what you wrote is halfway true... <laughs> It's it's actually a hundred percent true. Come on. So we're like absolutely. I'm reading like, this. So, I'm like, he's so fucking bullshitting about this. There's no way this happened. 
I'm not looking at my wife now. She hates she hates that I tell that story. Oh my god! So here's a loser true. marine diver bodyguard dude <laughs> hanging out, drinking, getting hammered, and hot chick walks up and hands him her card and says, "Call me." Come on, like, all right, like, okay, no, we're we just gonna so make, make, make no, shit this, up. It's an true. No, so I go in there. So I'm getting ready to go um, on a. I'm getting ready to take a little time off and go to Ireland. And uh, I'm, I, so I knew these Irish girls. And so I, I go into the into the bar with like an entourage of women. So it even looks even worse. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm sitting down at this booth and I'm not dating, I'm not romantic with any of these girls. But then my my wife at the time, I mean, my wife, you know, is who soon be my wife is sitting in the next next booth over. We're just exchanging glances back and forth, that kind of stuff. And then um, the. And then her friends get up and leave it. And then also they, they, her friends get up and meet. She moves a little bit in a different spot of the bar. We go, we end up going to the bar, sitting up at the bar. And then I notice she comes up to me and she goes, we, again, we've been exchanging on and off all night. Kind of just looks and looks. And she comes up and she hands me her card. And she goes, if you're ever interested in a piece of land, give me a call. And I look at the card and her last name is Land. And so, yeah, I was like, I am interested in a piece of land. <laughs> now, hey, question for your wife. How many times did she use that line? Was that like the only time in her life she ever used that or what? I, let me I've just never, tell you, I, that's a quality yeah. line right there. <laughs> I know it is. It's great. She hates it because she thinks it sounds bad. I think it's, I think it's amazing. I, think I love it's, it. I, I think it's hilarious, actually. Yeah. Come on. And so that's why I included, and that's why, and, and when anyone ever asks us about, you know, how we met, I include that because I think it's a classic story. And then well, she literally and it says out, a little like, bit. Oh. It says a little bit about her understanding of the male psyche too, right? Like I'm thinking yeah, that you could, you could close about anything on that one, right? Yeah. Well, she'll tell, and she'll she'll tell her girlfriends all the time. She goes, "You want to keep it? You want to keep your man happy?" Belly full, balls empty. <laughs> that's 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 a direct quote from her, as we tell you. <laughs> <laughs> that's a dangerous. Hey, that's a dangerous woman. Somebody who has that kind of insight. Somebody's paying attention like that. That we're, we're we're men. We're simple creatures, really. I mean, you know, we have these basic primal needs. You you give those, we'll pretty much. And we're doers. We're producers. We'll freaking knock down doors and break through walls to give you what you want if you take care of us. Right. Yeah. I, well, that's how I look at it. Like you respect respect is the key thing. You, you give us respect, and then you you take care of those other primal needs. What uh, we'll do a lot for a woman. Has she ever considered um, writing, uh, having you write a book for her about her view of relationships and how to live a happy life? No. No, no, uh, no I told her she's right, but she's just not, not yet now. But got it, got, uh, it. got it. So that's what, 2000, <laughs> 2002 or, or thereabouts. So yeah. That, so yeah. Are, you, are you still bodyguarding at that time? And now you've got uh, a significant other like on the horizon. How does your career shake out? I ended up just leaving it because I didn't. And this is where the guidance of a good father or a good friend can come into place. I was just telling the story the other day and uh, I get, I'm, I'm, I'm up on a detail up in Milpitas working for protection for these managers at a strike. And I'm doing like, was it two or three weeks on two or three weeks off, something like that. 
And I'm flying back and forth. She flies up every now and then. It clearly it's a strain on the relationship. You know, distance is not always the best. Right. And the long and short of it, I get a call from one of the first guys who brought me on back in the day. He goes, listen, there's a new detail that's starting up in Bluebell, Pennsylvania, big pharmaceutical. They need to have a position open. You're perfect for it um, on the international travel team. It's going to be great money. And but I'd be traveling internationally nine months out of the year. I instantly, the old Jeff, the adventure Jeff's like, this is fucking amazing. International travel team for a big farm, big pharma CEO. This sounds really cool. Um, I mentioned it to her. I could tell on her voice, like, this isn't cool. But she goes, listen, I'm willing to move the blue bell for you. I'm like, wow. She goes, yeah, I don't know what I'll do for nine months the time you're gone, but I'm willing to do it. And now I'm feeling guilt about it. So I called my old man and he just, is just a good counselor. Just uh, uh, my, my dad, you know, he's, he's passed on, but was just a good rock solid man. And just, you know, gave me, gave me solid advice. And I ended up not taking the job. In fact, I ended up quitting bodyguarding. What, what was, yeah. what was his advice? He, he goes, well, he kind of, he goes, so she's willing to go. It's like, so, and he goes, he, he, he states the obvious. He goes, what the hell is she going to do in Bluebell, Pennsylvania when you're gone? So you're gonna drag her out there and leave her there? So he goes, you're, you're doing this only for yourself. He goes, do you see yourself with her down the road? I'm like, absolutely, I, I, I'm gonna marry her. I'm, I'm gonna marry her. And he's like, well then, what, if you know you're gonna marry her, you know she's the best thing you've ever had in your life. Why would you risk it by dragging her across the country, leaving her in some podunk town, and then be gone all the time? Do you think that's gonna, you think a relationship, you think you're gonna have that relationship when you return? Like, no, probably not. Maybe, you know, I mean, he was asking real questions, you know, and it's like, you know, do you think you're being a little selfish? I was, I was only thinking of myself because you're not thinking of her. He goes, what I suggest you, if you're going to take the job, you break up with her. I was like, oh, because by dragging her over there, you're being selfish. I was like, yeah, yeah, I am. I wanted my cake and eat it too. Right. Right. And he was like, listen, he goes, if she's the one, you know what to do. He goes, follow your instincts. You know what to do. Then he essentially led it up to me. You know, I gave it to him. He gave some advice. And he goes, you, you're smart. You're a smart man, Jeff. You, you can figure this out on your own. And I did. I was like, I, I, want, her more, I want her more than the job. So I turned it down. All right, and then so, I just ended up quitting. Yeah. yeah. So now you're unemployed with a hot wife. <laughs> now, <laughs> right? That's not an optimum situation then. So, so now what? So now you're an adventurer. Now you're, you're, you've got, uh, are you married at this time yet? Or, or are you just, so then no. So we're still kind of, we're just, you know, dating and we're committed to each other. So I quit. Right. And then this opportunity to go to Idaho and start this new ski resort pops up. And I'm like, what about moving? Like you and I can have our own adventure together. And she goes, I'm on board. And so we just literally pack our shit and we move to, uh, McCall, Idaho and we start this resort. And that decision was like one of the best decisions of my life. What it, I mean, Idaho is gorgeous. It's right. God's country. It's beautiful. I get on the ground. What, what was I? Shit. I was 32 or 33. I'd been making six, you know, six figures easily. And now I'm making 12 bucks an hour. But I went in there with an attitude that I could see the vision of where this resort, like this resort is literally ground level. There's like nothing there but two years, right. a mountain, a meadow and a lake. And I saw the master plan. It's like, this is, 
this is opportunity. We could be like employees 15 and 16 here. Like this is ground level shit. Like who knows where this can go. She's being hired on the real estate sales team and like, let's do this. And so we both, we both just pack our shit and we move there. I'm making 12 bucks an hour. All I can tell you is that when we left seven years later, we're millionaires. So we went from not having anything to living in some shanty up there and to just taking big risks and got big gains. I'd rather be lucky than good. So now I, there's a little <laughs> skill involved in that. So, okay. So now, um, 10 years later you leave, what is it now? 2010, 2012. And yeah, we, where, where do you, we why come back do, to San Diego? Why, why do you leave? And, and what were you going to do? We leave because the, well, that was the, um, the recession, the you know, uh, financial crash. Right. And right. so when you look at like places like, so the resort got built out, ski runs were put in, a golf course was put in, a marine on the way, you know, uh, hundreds and hundreds of units were built and constructed and sold. So uh, we did, we did really, really well, but then the crash comes. And then we look at places like a destination place, like a McCall, Idaho, or, People don't really live there. It's just built, the entire industry is built about rec around recreation. And so when there's a recession everywhere else to places like that, it's like a depression. Right. So real estate market crashed, everything crashed, things were going under. I got a little nimble. I started some businesses up there that did really well on the side. And then eventually she's like, listen, I just, I just want to go back to San Diego because she's a native San Diegan. She's one of those very few that still exists. And so she's, I want to go back. I'm like, okay, we can do that. So, I come back and I am just, uh, I create a, I then, this is where my entrepreneurial life kind of, kind of starts where I'm starting to use my mind and my ingenuity and creativity versus, you know, brunt force and physicality. And I start really thinking creatively because the businesses I created up there did real, did at the, on the back end did really well. And I sold them and then came down back to San Diego. Uh, I, I came a little bit after she, she had left and I came a little bit after to kind of tie up all the uh, all loose ends, but I come down to create another ticket, taking advantage of the kind of financial situation. I get into a, a, a business, a service business on the end of the mortgages. Right. And it's a prize, a company that was like BPOs and things like that, finding valuation. So I get into a side of that house and create this business. It, it thrives. It does well. So this is where I just start to just, again, use my mind, use my ingenuity and creativity and things are, things are looking good. And then I decided to write a book one day and then well, that takes off. So, so where does that come? Where does, I decided to write a book one day. It sounds like, yeah, um, I wanted to go to the beach, except you said I wanted to, I, I wanted to write a book. Where does that come from? Had it be, had it been something that you had wanted to do for a while um, had it always been a thought in your head? How does how it does always that... been a thought? You know, like there, there's just a, again, there's just that weird kind of you know going back to the bodyguard thing. There's that weird romantic kind of concept, like wow, I'm, how cool would it be to be an author, to be a novelist? <laughs> I think that maybe those are very elementary or childish, you know, kind of ways of so looking was at it, things. So like, when you <laughs> when you thought about writing, it would be as a novelist. Well, I, yes, I thought or about did it. You know? And the first opportunity, yeah, I had thought about it and I tinkered around with writing, even in the Marine Corps, I'd taken like, I'd tinkered around creating little short stories here and there, but nothing substantial. And then, cause we ended up having, we had two girls and then they were young and I written a, I wrote a children's book for them. 
And that was kind of the first opportunity where I got to create something. And that was an idea and then create it. And there it is kind of in physical form. I'm like, okay, I can do this. So, so I what, got this what, cool children's book. What, what can I do next? What was the name of the book? What is the name of Doggy the book? Doggyville. What? Doggyville. Doggyville. Yeah. Can, it's about, a, it's not third. It's about my girl's dog who goes on adventures, that kind of stuff like that. But, so can people, is it still in the market? Can people still buy it? Yeah, you can buy it on Amazon, and it's on. It's an electronic version or paperback, trade yeah. paper, not trade, but like a large paperback right. version. Yeah, Doggyville. What's the what's the and what's the plot of the of the book? The, the plot is that the dog Kiki gets in a little bit of trouble, leaves home, goes to a place called Doggyville, and then once he's there, Doggyville's like paradise for dogs. Right, they can do everything, anything. Right. But once he's there, he realizes the being in Doggyville, having all these things is great, but it's not. It's he wishes he could have his 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 family there. And so he realizes that life is not about all the things you can have. It's about family. So he decides to come and it's about his adventure coming home and then reuniting with his family. Nice, nice. All right. All right. So so you write that and it, it actually comes to market and you say, I can do this. And so the talk me walk me through the um the idea for what are you going to write next well i've always been a big fan of apocalyptic fiction and mainly because i i, I like science fiction but i also like i've always been fascinated with kind of the what if scenarios like what if a big calamity or event occurs you know essentially what happens and really when you examine apocalyptic fiction it's really kind of a telling of a human condition um, because you can have an event that occurs, but it's because human beings have a tendency not to cooperate with one another that you get the apocalypse in some regards. Now, some apocalyptic type type of situations are just just happen. Like World War, if you look at like Europe and during World War II, there were parts of Europe that definitely were it's apocalyptic. People living there, the their entire worlds are changed. The, the cities are gone, you know, they, they, things are never going to be the same. That's kind of like an apocalyptic event for the, if you ask that individual on a small scale or a regional or national scale, that's apocalyptic. So what, what the country was before is not the country coming on the back end of that. And their way of life is typically gone. Um, and they probably lose people along the way, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, but then there can be events that I think they're controllable, but humans are the ones that dictate whether they fall into chaos. And that is like, it's a, say, you, say you have a grid down scenario where the power goes out. Well, you have, you have the power go out for an extended period of time, things become chaotic. And why do they become chaotic? Because people don't work and, and they don't collaborate or coordinate uh, together to make things functional. You'll have a certain, you have a power vacuum is created, people swoop into that vacuum, some can be good, some can be bad. People take advantage of other people. Some people, and it, so it's a mixed bag of reactions to an event, which typically brings about an apocalyptic collapse, right? And so I've always been fascinated. I've read a lot of books about it, and I specifically kept reading. I really wanted to have a a book that told the story of like what happens to our military. You have all these great stories of apocalyptic events, but what happens to being coming from the military? What happens to the military? Like, do they stay? 
as one unit? Did they fracture and fall apart? And I was like, I couldn't find a book. So I was like, you know, I'd written the children. I was like, what if I just wrote, if I can't find it, why don't I just create it myself? And so I set about um, writing it. I didn't tell my wife about it because I'm, all, I'm, a, I'm an idea guy. I've always got ideas and she's always like rolling her eyes at some of them. <laughs> so, but you know, some of my ideas have really paid off. So, I mean, I'll give myself a credit on that. But so I wrote a few chapters and I told her I was going to write a novel. And she's like, oh God. And I said, hold on. I've okay, so hold on. So now that you're independently wealthy, you're back down in San Diego. Um, you have, you've written one book. And so you're dabbling these, you're an entrepreneur that dabbles in businesses and obviously you're having success. Uh, so you don't have any financial pressure to, to, to do anything. And, and, and you begin this process. Yay. Well, let's get back. So we had made a significant amount of money in Idaho, right? but we'd also taken a lot of that money and we had invested it in a lot of real estate. And then, so when the crash comes, we get hit hard. Right. And it's like it, we're playing musical chairs and trying to unload our property. Right. Okay. And so we get caught on the back end of some of that. And so we do do lose a lot of what we had gained. And, and so when we get back to San Diego, we're, we're living large, but then I'm trying to create these businesses. Some are doing good. So, you know, and so like we're, and we end up in a situation that isn't like it's, it's, we, we could be broke within a year if things don't work out. Right. Right. And so when I go to try to do this book, I'm like, I think like, I don't know. I just have this instinct. Like, I know, like, I think this thing's going to do well. Like, I don't know. I think this is going to be the answer to like a lot of stuff. And so I go all in on it. And so there was pressure that I, you know, I, there was, cause my wife had stopped working when she had our first daughter. And um, so I was like, it's all on me. That's fine. I can handle it. But there was still definitely pressure. So I wouldn't say there, there was just unlimited funds there. But um, so I would I definitely wanted the book to to help and it, it ends up doing so. But um, so there definitely was some pressure to make sure the story is correct. But uh, so I did. I write the book. I get an agent. Um, wonderful woman. But then she had some other ideas with the book and which I didn't like. And so I decided to just self-publish it. So I'm now now I'm literally like at the poker table. I'm, I go all in. I'm gonna I fire this agent, which is hard. It's already impossible to get an agent. Fire her. Self-publish it. It doesn't really do anything. I'm like, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have fired Margaret's What I'm thinking. I'm like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Um, and so by ten day on the tenth day, you know, I'm just thinking, well. This is going to like provide, you know, maybe I can buy Tony a dinner once a month or something. <laughs> like, whatever. It was fun. It was an interesting experience. And then it just starts selling. I wake up and the sales are spiked. And at Amazon, you can it, you can check your sales almost in real time as they're happening. So I'm refreshing in sales, refresh sales. I'm like, holy shit, this has got to be a fluke. So the next day it goes and it's still selling. And the next day it's still selling. I'm like... Okay, something's have something something happened, and, and and it has to be told that I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. By the way, I didn't know what I was doing. Like, um, I mean, I I I think I wrote a pretty damn good book, but I, as far as the marketing side of it, I hadn't, hadn't done any marketing. I didn't know what I was doing, and it's just selling and selling and selling and selling. So after about like the second week, 
I go and and at that time I'd gone back to diving. By the way, I was doing some. I was working for a di- local dive company in San Diego, and I was like, I told my wife, I was like, I think I need to quit my job and write the sequel to this book and get it out fast. I can't. I can't spend eighteen months. There's an opportunity here. There's a door wide open, and I need to step through the door right now. And that requires me to get a sequel out within three to four months. So you're going to write a, a second novel in three to four months. Like, yes, I am. But in order to do it, I have to quit my job. So was, no, no, you can't do that. But I always come prepared because I know her reactions. So I already printed out a spreadsheet of what we what I'd made in those first two weeks. I went uh, the first the week to two weeks of it selling really well. And she's like, oh, my gosh, it's like income that is about half of what I would make for the entire year in two weeks. He's like, and you think this is going to keep going? I'm like, I, I don't know. I mean, but it's looking pretty good right now. And I said, I need it. I said, the opportunity is there. I got to take it. One thing you might have noticed, I'm a big risk taker. I just take risks. <laughs> sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. <laughs> so I quit my <laughs> But it's all, it's paid off for me most of the time. So I quit my job. I get the writing, the sequel. The book won't stop selling. It's like a month goes by, two months. It's just crushing it. And I then the calls are coming in from publishers, little publishers here and there. And then I get the big call. It was in July. So I published the book in April. And in July, I get a call from Penguin Random House. They're the largest publisher in the world. And... They're like, hey, we've got your book here, and we'd like to take it and any other books you have. I'm like, really? So I feel pretty validated, and but, but my books are selling well. I've got the second book up for pre-order, and that's already hit number one. It's like the, the sales are just through the roof. And I'm like, what's my incentive to go with you guys? And they pitch it to me, and then they offer a, a huge like advance to take that book, the second book, and then two other books. And my ego gets kind of is, is there. I'm like, hey, this biggest publisher in the world wants me. It gives me validation as a writer to have a big, big mainstream traditional publisher. Fuck it, I'm going to take it. So I take the deal. And, you know, the rest is history. But, uh, I mean, 38 books later. Holy shit, man. Yeah, and I now I run my own publishing company. So it's, but it's all. I mean, to go back to that luck thing, you were saying, you'd rather be lucky than good. <laughs> well, there's, but truth be told, though, I think, um, and whether you're 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 in in a war or in life, there's a combination of of skill preparation and luck that that contribute to most people's success. And, and and people that are successful and and will be candid about it will tell you about you know, and I remember listening to um, guys my dad was involved in major league or he's a manager in major league baseball and I would hear guys talking about their careers and they would be talking about yeah I was stuck in double a behind two guys and the guy in triple a breaks his leg the guy in you know that was ahead of, the other guy ahead of me he got chicken pox and I got a chance to play and I hit like 420. I'd never hit above 310 and I hit 420 for about a month. And then the guy in AAA, he gets called up to the big league, say, bring me to AAA. And I continue it. I hit like 320. And then I, then he gets hurt and then I get a chance there. 
And, and and this is so you know I was buried and and it, if it wasn't for those guys getting sick and the chicken, I mean they tell you this story about luck, and but also when uh, when they when they get put into a situation they hit it on the screws and they deliver because at some point you got to do that right. Oh yeah, there's there, there's an action that has to follow. So when luck presents itself, you then have to act on it. Right. I think that's I call it luck or opportunity. You know right. whatever it is like with with the sales. I, I still today people like how did you do what did you do yeah what I had happened no did, fucking did you, idea you don't, I don't know how does it did it know. was it involved in chat rooms and somebody who was you know big in that genre said hey you got to check this book out then it's was like wildfire do you have any idea in terms of well, of a post mortem how that happened yeah so I so I've got now I know how the Amazon search engine works um, and a lot of it's about. Um, search keywords and things like that. I mean, everyone's heard of SEO or search engine optimization. Right. Well, Amazon is a huge search engine. That's really what it is. It's one of the biggest sets out there, but it's just a marketplace search engine. You're looking for shit, right? Right. And so what they do, they have algorithms that are connecting to things. And so the, when, when, whenever a product sells really well, they start populating that on other people's product pages. So you, uh, so at the time you would be able to go to another person's book at apocalyptic and they, they attach all those together. So it'll say like, if someone wants to read, you know, the whatever book about the end of the world, uh, and then you'll go below like people who like this also like this, and it'll show all these other books, you know, and that are similar to it. And so my book was populated all over. And it just spread like virally spread throughout the the Amazon search engine on everyone's product page, and then there's the word of mouth with inside the prepper survivalist communities and people that kind of like the genre specifically. They're spreading the word about it. Um, there's heavy marine influence in it, so I know there's some jarheads that are talking about it. So you you kind of get a combination of everything, but I think the real viral input was like it just had gotten picked up. And then enough people reading and it just started populating and then it just feeds on itself and it just took off. It went viral essentially on Amazon. Um, and come to find out like when, when there's two ways of be- becoming published traditionally. And that is you can have an agent who presents your manuscript to a big, big publisher. Or I come to find out later because I asked the guys, you know, like, how did you find my book? He goes, well, we actually scour Amazon product pages looking for books that are bestsellers and we then see if they're represented or not. If they're not, then we reach out to them. So that's how they found me. They've seen that I was number one across different genres. I was selling consistently well, like for months and months. Like this guy is a winner. And for them, it's a no-brainer. Like it's, when you go to a, when you go through an agent, they don't know if the book's going to sell well or not, right? Right, right? But mine was already producing. So I'd already had a fan base. I'd already created a sequel. They love that too. Like I was already like, doing the business side correctly just instinctually and they're like we want this guy his fan base is already this he's already got the sales to sign him let we got to keep him on board so they we, we structured a nice advance with bonus deal contract and so boom they stays they picked me up all right let me ask you um let me ask you about the 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 quote that leads me to you hard times create strong men Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men, and weak men create hard times. I hear that, and I'm like, "Holy shit, we're living in those hard times right now, right? Who the fuck said this? Like, where does it come from?" So tell me, 
what what produces that quote? What book is it in? What and, and but what produces it inside of you as a writer? Where, how do you come to that? Because that's let me just tell you, that's a fucking awesome quote. Yeah, well, the, the, the words are mine, and the fact that they, the reality is, like I was talking to you the other day, it's a, a oversimplification of generational theory. And I'd read uh, a book called The Fourth Turning, uh, I think by William Strauss, and where I, but the Strauss, the Strauss How of Generational Theory, and uh, their book The Fourth Turning uh, really kind of talks about four different generational. Event four different generations, and, and, and after each cycle, it starts all over again. But the fourth turning is essentially where things get really bad, where there's typically an event or series of events that are climatic, that are chaotic, that result in a changing of the guard sometimes, or a, a, a massive paradigm shift. Those are those can manifest themselves as revolutions, civil wars, just wars in general. Um, uh, it can also be manifested in eco- like massive economic collapse where a complete one system ends, another one begins. And th- they look at these things happen about 80 year time periods from the first turning to the fourth turning. So each generation, each turning is about a generation around 20, 20 some years, 20, 25 years. I mean, it's not exactly 80 years it begins, it's so, but that's kind of the rough, you know, timeline and when these things happen. Um, and if you look at like American history, what's interesting is you look at the Revolutionary War from that time period to the Civil War, that's 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 one turning right there. You got a first the first turning to the fourth right there. The fourth being the American Civil War, because what happens on what coming on the outside of that is a completely different time period, different paradigm shift, right? Even how the United States is considered it went from, I think, with these United States to the United States, right. where emphasis on more independent sovereign states become kind of a collection of states with really a much stronger central government. Uh, just the concept of uh, what it means to be the United States changes. And then you got you go another 80 years from there and you end up in World War II, Right. So you can see where these 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 events, and then of course, what happens on the other side of World War II, it's another paradigm shift where the United States enters the war, not really a superpower, exits exits the war a b, I mean a one of two superpowers, right? So and then now we go, <laughs> we're now in the if you look at what they're saying, we're kind of in the fourth the end of the fourth turning. So if what they theorize is correct, we could be looking at some kind of event coming our way. And some people would say, yeah, there could be a civil war happening, a, a true economic depression, complete collapse of the system itself, which then leads to a collapse of the, the central government. Um, you know, and I don't think, while I agree with you, we're living in hard times, I think times will get harder, by the way. I think we're. I think times are yet have yet to be as hard as we're going to see. I don't think we're there yet. Why do you believe that? Because we're not. We're not at the collapse yet. We're on the cusp of it, though. All right. All right. And I think you know if you, if you look at civil wars and if some people are, have been talking about. It, I've talked about it for a long time, but you can see more and more of it. But I don't think it'll be kind of um a civil war and like people are lining up across fields at, at each other it'd be more asymmetrical kind of warfare it won't me, me, may not necessarily be 
you know, state versus state, even though you will have some states that will might break away or pull away from central government or, or, or kind of authoritarianism. But you'll see a lot of kind of you're actually kind of even experiencing a civil war when you just look at kind of um, the way rhetoric is today, the way social media is engineered, where there is clearly an attack of one political party and the support structure or system that they have, you know, be it like tech companies going against one specific ideology. That's definitely a type of warfare. They're silencing people, you know, shutting them up, imprisoning them. They're creating a culture of political um, dissidents. You know, I mean, there, there's, it's definitely unique. If you go back well, and you're, think you're, of, And you're even seeing, um, you're even seeing, you know, relative to um, the Roe v. Wade thing, the open advocacy of violence against justices, right? And yeah. then you're seeing, yeah. you know, people, first of all, they wouldn't enact security measures that would protect, you know, Supreme Court justices and their families, um, you know, and, you know, but you have people on TV, um, on Twitter, openly advocating, you know, to to harm these people and to go after them personally. And you're watching it and you're saying, wait a minute, we're the adults in the room that are supposed to say, hey, that's not how we do it in this country. We don't do it like that. And so, and and it, and, it, and you're seeing it get, you're waiting, like I said, it's like waiting for your parents to get home, you know, when your brothers and sisters are fighting you know, we're the adults and they don't seem to, they, they, and they don't seem to show up. Yeah. And I, I think you're seeing that more from one side than the other. And, but I do, but without, but you do see it on both sides though, to certain degrees. Right. When you look at like even uh, that, that, that kind of mayhem that happened on January 6th, when I don't think it was not an insurrection. It was just people got, they got, it was a riot, right? Like, I mean, how many people will just the thought of entering our capital and just walk, just doing that stuff? I understand the concept of the people's house, I, but yet still there's, there's a breakdown in decorum, right? How people communicate with each other. Um, and you're seeing a lot of hatred on both sides. I will say that I, I think you're seeing it manifest itself in very violent tendencies on the left with the, their deployment of Antifa and these other groups, you know, BLM and whatnot, that extremely violent people extremely violent um, with absolutely complete disregard for, I mean, they're, well, they're doing kind of like, I, I read a book years ago and you've probably read it. Uh, it was called on killing. Yes. And you know, he, he, he the author in there talks about kind of the psychological, what enables a warrior to kill easier is to dehumanize your enemy. Right. Right. Dave Grossman. So we're Dave, seeing that. Dave Grossman, by the way, wrote it. There you go. Yeah, there you go. And, when you're looking at happening today, you're seeing a dehumanization of political opponents. Now they're not even human. They're, we're being communicated that they're subhuman. They're something. They're evil, and so then it's okay to kill evil. Yeah, not only uh, is it okay, you have the right. You have the right to yes, harm them because yes. your because your cause is the right cause, and therefore whatever yeah. stands in your way, you know, can be destroyed because you have that right. Yes. Yeah, you you have you have actually a, even a, a moral obligation to go destroy it right. uh, and to silence it and the, and to and, and that's why you're seeing the term Nazi used everywhere, right. everywhere. Right. Like no one likes Nazis or racists. Nobody does, by the way. 
And so, except unless you're a Nazi or racist, and there are not very many of them, really. And honestly, there's not a lot of us. Self-admitted, let alone self-admitted. But your quote, this quote, if you if you if you type this quote in, right? Hard times create strong men. Strong times, strong men create good times. If, If you type that whole quote in and then hit enter under the all tab of of Google search engine, and you look at all the shit that comes up. And there's a lot of crazy shit. So how has that quote, it's obviously been hijacked by different people. Um, tell me about being the author of it and watching where this thing has gone. Oh, it's surreal. You know, I mean, my books have done fairly well. I mean, I'm a successful author, so I'm used to having fans and readers and people reach out and doing interviews and having some sense of kind of, you know, popularity for the books I've written. But the quote itself has created such a fever. And you're right. Some people are using it and they're identifying with it. And other people are looking at it as if it's against them. They're the weak men, quote unquote, because some people get very visceral about it. And I don't understand what's what I, I think it's a true. I'm speaking. There's truth being spoken there. Um, it, it, and listen to it. Too, it's, it's not just an oversimplification generational theory. It's just a, a simple concept. Like the concept is like not original. Right. The concept of when we talk about we talk about this, this stuff all the time. Um, you know, where, you know, you get, you, you, you get where we look at societies that become affluent, they become soft typically. This right. isn't, I mean, right. I didn't, I didn't invent a concept. No, no, just, just read, read, words together. But the, read the fall of Rome, right? Read the fall of Rome. Oh, exactly. Absolutely. Rome is and not defeated Greece. outside in. Yeah. It's defeated inside out. Yeah. Where the people, be, the nation becomes so affluent and soft that they don't even want to defend themselves. Hence why they start hiring mercenaries. Right to be in their and be in the ranks of their armies and then eventually the, the mercenaries look like wait a minute <laughs> like it's it's very easy like to look at like the basic concept behind that quote and you can see it applied you layer that into the world where it may not be exact every 80 years based on strauss how but you can see a cycle that exists in the world you can it exists there's absolutely a cycle. there's a rise a peak and a fall of every nation state. And the United States won't be immune from that. It's just a matter of when that fall occurs. No, you're, and you and, know, one of the things you said about mercenaries, uh, we're having a discussion about the dwindling percentage of America's young people that can actually physically and mentally qualify to serve, right? The difficulty that recruiters are having, and ultimately, what solution, what, what is the solution for that? And 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 one of the solutions is, right? Hire foreign, um, hire for, you know hire mercenaries. But we wouldn't call it that. What we would do is we would liberalize our immigration policies, right? And say a path to citizenship is this. But we'd we would be outsourcing, right? The defense of the nation, right? To to people from other countries. And so it's it's interesting. Hey. Yeah, I mean, there's a problem with that. I mean, I think there's I, I can understand the concept of having, a, you know, immigration, if you want to give an incentive or a pathway to citizenship. But if your own people aren't motivated to fight for their own country, their own nation state, then there's a problem there because then they means they don't believe in it. And you're seeing a lot of that happen now where 
people are talking about how horrible our it's whether how horrible our our free market capitalist system is or how evil that is or how evil just even having the republic a constitutional republic is and that we need a pure democracy or we need this or we need that like how they're breaking things down that our system even our constitution is evil or it's bad or it's born out of racism and all these things and those are words and an ideology that doesn't inspire people to want to defend that they they think that it's evil in itself and should be destroyed um that's a problem and a nation won't stay one long if it doesn't have borders and it doesn't have an identity that people want to embrace talk i want to go back to how how so how do you deal with this quote um all that it is stirred up um do you have you been invited to forums to speak about it have you done a lot of interviews about it um because it would seem to me like this quote would yank you into the middle of a white hot political cultural social media debate you can select which one of those cauldrons you want to jump into on any given day um, do you participate in that? Um, because um, we've all seen the implications of deal with something like this that kind of blows up uh, in the midst of this culture war that we're having. Well, I, I, I just kind of just ignored it for a lot. I mean, um, I am my books and myself I'm, are greater than a few words that I strung together anyway, just to take one quote out of the book itself where one character is talking to another and then make that everything that I am or all my, all that my books are, you know, I, while I'm flattered that it's, it's taken on a life and mainly it's only happened since like the 20 since like the election cycle of 2020 is when it, some prominent people got a hold of it and were throwing it around and it's really taken off. But when I, when it ended up in those who remain in 2016, I wrote the book in 2015, published it in 2016. It's, um, there were already some people using it, but it was hadn't hadn't gotten any kind of visibility at all. But now it's become very popular, and I just and I've seen the amount of hate against it, which I I still do. They do not understand. I, I I try to understand why people think a certain way and why they would think that that is fascist. Like, what's fascist about that concept? I don't I don't get that. It confuses me why people's brains work that way i think they're broken but um so i've been asked to do interviews for fox and i've just you know while it would help my well it would help sales and and give me a bigger spotlight that spotlight would also bring all the haters out and i just i just don't want to deal with it to be honest with you i um and I've, I've actually i've had other people from media matters come on and try to ask me how i think about my quote being used for white nationalism or Nazis or fascists and somehow insinuating by me not denouncing it, then therefore I must be one. And if you go through all those Reddit posts about it and people will say, I'm a, I'm a fascist, <laughs> like, like all these horrible things. And it's like, where are you? Where, I don't even know where this comes from. Right. It's just, right. it's part of the broken system. And I, I, I I don't mind like getting on with you and having a conversation because we, you and I can have a conversation about it. I don't want to have the conversation too in depth about the, um, 
that like I, I don't I don't I don't I don't I don't I just want to just stay away from the, the quagmire shit because right. it's just like I, I got other important things to do besides worry about that. I always have other other people can fight it, but I don't mind talking about it. I just don't want to get into. But yeah, I, I kind of stay. I kind of shy away from it. Yeah. No, I mean, if you if you at all paid attention, you know, to to how these things go, you can see that uh, the number of people that have had, uh, in many cases, their livelihood um, because they either made a statement or or whatnot, and uh, they've had their careers destroyed. All right, my guest, very graciously, Jeff Hop. Am I saying Hoff right? Yes, you are. Okay. Right. I get nervous about names. And, uh, and <laughs> I do then, too, by the way. Yeah. And then once I fuck it up, then I can't say it. Then I get. So anyway, that's good. All right. Um, give me a favorite nonfiction work that you would recommend to other people. Uh, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Give me, um, of the books you've written, which one is your favorite? The End, my very first novel. The End. Got it. Um, favorite beach in San Diego? Uh, Del Mar. Powerhouse. Got it. Um, also, I also, also like Tory Pines, too. It's a toss-up. <laughs> both both are qua- San Diego. There's not a whole lot of beaches that you can select in San Diego that are shitty. Okay. Yeah. Favorite pizza? Um, just a regular standard thin crust pepperoni. Favorite um, tourist spot that you've ever been? Most beautiful. How about this? Most beautiful tourist spot you've ever been in your trips around the world? Uh, uh, Morea. Oh, Morea. Really? It's an island on. It's an island part. It's an island part of uh, French Polynesia. Yeah. Really gorgeous. The um the coolest place you've ever been. And when I say coolest, coolest, most fun you've ever been place. So most beautiful down in Tahiti, uh, the most fun place you've ever been is. Oh, wow. Um, hmm. Hmm. Most fun. I see the thing is I have fun everywhere I go. <laughs> Come on, man. You can't, um, like, you can't punk out of this. I'm not going to punk out. I'm just trying to think. I'm trying to think. I have so much fun in so many places. Most fun. I'm trying to think back some places in when I was in the Marine Corps. We're fine. Like, okay. Fun. Most fun. You want to talk about fun? Uh, Padilla. Padilla. Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. That would, that would qualify. Favorite handgun. <laughs> Favorite handgun. I love my SIG P, uh, P239. Favorite rifle? Uh, favorite rifle is uh, I love my um, uh, my um, Winchester Model Seventy. Favorite movie? Ooh, favorite movie! Mm. Gladiator. Nice. The opening scene of Gladiator. I went to that fucking thing with my <laughs> two sons. Right? They're like, "Hey, do you want to go see Gladiator?" I'm like, "What's it about?" They're like gladiators i'm like uh okay uh, uh, who's going just us three my two sons and i okay that opening scene holy shit man i don't know who consulted on doing that but they knew what the fuck they were doing that's awesome um 
Uh, last question. Um, if I could accomplish one more great thing in my life, it would be to make a, adapt my one of my books into a movie. Whoa, whoa. The um, Jeff. First of all, um, it's uh, what a for me hearing the quote right tracking you down you're a marine like is is like crazy coincidence after crazy coincidence after crazy coincidence so one i want to thank you for doing this um uh first of all it's been an awesome conversation um a final final question uh and i asked you this live the other day but but i'll ask you it again so everybody can hear uh, what advice do you give for people out there that that are interested in writing i'm in the middle and actually i i I know what he's going to say, so I will just say this. His writing impacted my writing over the course of the last 48 hours. What what advice do you give um, people that are aspiring writers? Uh, so there was uh, Ernest Hemingway was being interviewed years ago by a reporter, and he was asked that same question, just like that. You know, what, what advice do you give aspiring writers? And he said, just write. That's it. Just sit your ass down and write. I find that most people overthink, they overanalyze, and they use that as a means to procrastinate. They think they need to take creative writing classes. They think they need, they think they need, they think they need, they think they need all this shit. When really all they need to do is sit down and write. And it's simple. You don't need a special software. Use Microsoft Word, word processor. Simple, done. That's all we still use in our publishing house for editing. Like, that's it. Don't overthink it. Just write. The other thing that you said to me the other day was, hey, look, I'm a storyteller. I can tell a story. And you said, just tell the story. And I was like, oh, I can do that. Yeah. Right? But I... Yeah, because again, that's I, nothing I, people over, overthink stuff. Yeah. Well, that's what, that's exactly what I've done. I mind fuck myself. And as I'm, as I'm, compo as I'm writing... I'm like, oh, this, that, the other thing. Instead of just tell the fucking story, man. Tell the story. Well, yeah, well, I, you know, I, and by the way, the advice I've, I've helped, I've helped so many people get an, uh, an idea and and help them and coach them through to now they have books and they're selling and they're they're very happy and fulfilled people when they have a book. It's because you got to get out of your own way. The overthinking is like being the storyteller too is another good advice. Just be the storyteller. Tell the story. The rough draft. Is called rough for a reason, and so but so don't you're not the editor when you're when you're starting a book. Don't be the editor. Don't worry about the technical aspects of the book. That all works itself out when you're going through rewrites and working through editing. But get the the the, the book down first. So be the storyteller. Whatever that story you're trying to tell, and even in nonfiction, you have to look at nonfiction as you're trying to tell a story. You're trying to convey information to the reader. And so it has to be laid out in a way that's compelling, even in a nonfiction set standpoint, that people want to pick it up and continue to read it. And so just be that storyteller, convey that information on the page. But if you want to get that rough draft done, don't worry about all that technical bullshit. Don't worry about typos and, and just write. And you'll be amazed when you just do that, you'll get the book done. And then once you get that book done, that accomplishment is huge. To, it's a huge mental accomplishment. You've written a book. Now you set about the hard work and the heavy labor of going through and rereading and doing rewrites. 
But having the book completed in rough format is a huge accomplishment. Very few people get to it because they freaking stop themselves. They overanalyze. Just right. Be the storyteller. Quit talking about me. Um, where do people where, where do people find your books? Uh, you can find them anywhere fine books are sold. Uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Google, um, uh, um, Apple. You know, like iBooks. But you know, uh, some Barnes and Noble stores still carry them from years and years ago. But yeah, Amazon's usually the best. All right, and you write under what name? I write under G. Michael Hoff. Got it. All right. And in terms of publishing, you said you're a publisher. Uh, what's the name of your business? Yeah, so I, I co-founded a publishing house called Beyond the Free Publishing with Shannon LeGrow. She's a popular podcaster, and we deal in um, her space. Uh, is She's a TV host slash popular podcaster. She deals in like the paranormal and stuff like that. So the, the publishing house is deals in nonfiction, paranormal, UFOs, all that kind of great, true crime, all that kind of weird shit. But um, yeah, check it out, beyondthefreepublishing.com. Got it. Um, dude, thank you so much for doing this. And I hope in the future, if uh, if I have the need, if I bug you, um, you'll come back on and talk shit about whatever else we want to talk about. I'd love to anytime, man. This has been great. I've really enjoyed it. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. No, no, no. Thank you. And again, the quote is awesome. Um, your stories even adds to the quote. And uh, so thank you very much. All right, brother. That'll do it. Um, yeah. That all happened by random. Based on a quote. Um, Jeff Hop, interesting, interesting guy, interesting life. And uh, you could tell, good guy. So anyway, uh, my thanks to him for coming on and doing that. Uh, my thanks to a Marine Sergeant, first name of Landon, Landon for uh, tossing that quote out. Cool stuff. Uh, also, just a final reminder. <clears throat> um, when Bad Things Happen to Good People is a great book. If you haven't read it yet, it's it it won't take you but a couple days to read it, if that. So go ahead and pick it up. On that note, I'm Mike McNamara. This is All Marine Radio on a Wednesday, the 22nd day of June. Have a great day. If I can help you help somebody, uh, please don't hesitate. That's what I do. On that note, I'm out.